you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night, by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall. And I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned, come. Let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite, and Tobiah the Ammonite servant, and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Today we're looking at chapter 2, verses 9 to chapter 3, verse 32. The reading was only chapter 2, but we also have chapter 3 to look at. Looking at the story so far, of course, we had Nehemiah, who had a pretty comfy job. He was working as a cupbearer to the king of Persia, Artaxerxes. A cupbearer to the king is the one who tasted all the wine. That's a pretty good job, isn't it? But it was pretty dangerous in case something was poisoned, of course. He worked and lived in a palace in the capital of uh, Persia, Susa. It seems that he was quite happy living in exile in Persia. So you may, in fact, ask the question, why didn't he return with the rest of the Jews under Zerubbabel and even Ezra? And that's a good question. Why was Nehemiah still there? Well, we don't know. 
But what we do know is that even though he was there in a comfy job in Susa, he still cared for his people. When his brother came to visit in Susa, Nehemiah asked him how it was going with the Jews that had escaped and had survived the exile. And his brother said, so this was from last week, Nehemiah 1.3, he said, and they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. And so Nehemiah, of course, even though he was comfortable there in exile, he still cared for his people and he broke down. Of course, he cried, he wept, he mourned, he fasted, and he prayed for his people. He cried out to God for mercy and for forgiveness, repenting of his sins, repenting of the sins of his people Israel. And then since he was also a man of action, which is why I really relate to Nehemiah so much, he waited for the right opportunity to approach the king. And at the right time, Nehemiah brought his burden for his fellow Jews to the king of Persia. In his appeal, he was well prepared, in fact. He had the details of the project that he wanted to do, and he also had some of the specific needs that he could foresee. So he was prepared when he went to the king. Something that's good for us to remember when we have our petitions to the king, to the Lord. Be specific when you ask him for some things. The king was gracious, of course, and granted him his request to return to Zion. He also asked the king for letters of recommendation and uh, rites of passage. And he was also given a military escort and even some of the materials for the rebuilding. So he was really blessed. I love that verse in Nehemiah 2, verse 8. And the king granted me what I asked for, for the good hand of the, of the Lord or of my God was upon me. It was God who moved the king to give favor to Nehemiah because God wanted Nehemiah to make a difference to the people that he wanted to reach. And we too, of course, if we make ourselves available to the Lord, if we too uh, decide to follow God and be obedient to him, he can use us to reach out to others. He can use whatever position we find ourselves in uh, to be able to serve him in this world. And he will use us for his eternal purposes. And I think that's a great privilege that we as human beings have is to cooperate with God's saving purposes on this earth. Perhaps it's our supreme privilege. So let's pick up the story in uh, chapter 2, verse 9. Uh, before they could start rebuilding, they experienced opposition. How surprising. Not really. Well, let's have a look at uh, uh, verse two, uh, two, chapter 2, 9 to 10 again. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So in verse 10, we're introduced to the opposition. We're introduced to two fellows, Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite. Later, there's a third detractor who joins this group. He is Geshem the Arab. Can you just imagine these guys? Uh, they were really enemies of God. The Samaritans had tried to hinder the rebuilding of the temple, and now they wanted to 
hinder the rebuilding of the wall. Whenever you're doing the work of the Lord, you can be sure there's always going to be opposition. Sanballat the Horonite is an interesting character. His name is Akkadian, that's Old Babylonian, Sin Abulut, which literally means Sin, that's the moon god, has given life. That's the meaning of his name. He was a governor or satrap of, the, of Samaria to the north of Jerusalem. He was a Horonite and may have been a syncretistic follower of the god of Horon and a native of Upper and Lower Beth Horon. His ancestry was from the mixed group that settled in Samaria after the Assyrian conquest. The Samaritans, of course, you see them from that time of uh, when the ten tribes were taken captive they were in the area of, uh, of Jerusalem or Israel all that time, even to the time of Jesus. And by the way, they still exist today. Samaritans are still there. They're not a growing group. They're a shrinking group because you can't become a Samaritan. Can't convert to Samaritan religion. You have to be born a Samaritan. So they're getting smaller, actually. But according to earlier Babylonian rule, Jerusalem and parts of Judea had been given to Samaria as territory. Tobiah actually had a good Jewish name. Tobiah means Yahweh is good. He was referred to contemptuously as an Ammonite. He may have been the governor of Ammon. To the east of Jerusalem, and perhaps he was Sanballat's personal secretary. He probably was half Jewish. His syncretism and his relationship through marriage, as we see later in the book of Nehemiah, gave him sinister access to privileged uh, places. He got himself in. He was one of those sneaky little guys who kind of plays both sides and gets himself into every area. May God save us from those people. So these guys were Nehemiah's personal opposition, dedicated to getting in the way of the work of God. Notice how they were mixed in their religion. They were syncretistic. They'd taken on some of the beliefs of the God of Israel, but it mixed it up with a lot of other pagan beliefs that were obviously contrary to the Bible. And Sanballat did not want Jerusalem to fall into the hand of the Jews. He was a control freak. He was devious, sneaky but in a very astute way. When Nehemiah had arrived on the scene to help Israel, they were very displeased. Immediately, they began to plan how to stop Nehemiah from achieving his goal. But Nehemiah's motivation remained undaunted. He knew that God had brought him to this moment in Israel's history. God had a plan for him. God had a destiny for him. And he was about to take on a project that others could not have completed for the last 100 years as the walls lay in ruins. The New Testament encourages us also. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. When God has called you to do something, when he's given you a vision, you have to Hold on to that vision no matter what. I've learned that the hard way. There's been many times that uh, there's been so many things that have come up against us personally or in our ministry that it can take you off, car uh, off course, but God always calls us back to the original vision that he has given us, our calling and our purpose as a ministry. And so we should be the same. Don't grow weary in doing good. 
So now let's have a look uh, in the next few verses in chapter 2, verses 11 to 8. I'm not going to read those verses as we've had the reading already. But we see there when Nehemiah first arrived on the scene in Jerusalem, he didn't tell people. He didn't come and just display his reason for being there straight away. He first wanted to inspect the condition of the walls himself. One night he went out with a few good men to check out the walls. And in verses 17 to 18, we see this. Then I said to them, you see the trouble that we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burnt? Come, let us build the walls of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise and build. Let us rise up rather and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. What a wonderful response. That's exactly what Nehemiah wanted, of course. Let us rise and begin building. And they immediately started to get themselves ready for the work of God. The Word of God says, so they strengthened their hands for the good work. So Nehemiah inspired the people to believe again and to have hope. And often that's the most important role of a leader, to instill hope and to instill belief that a goal can be accomplished because the ultimate purpose is the glory of God. He inspired them with his testimony of how God had graciously granted him his request. And you know what that did for the people? It showed them that God hadn't forgotten them. Can you imagine what it had been living like in shame and disgrace, trying to rebuild Jerusalem, but for almost 100 years, they hadn't got the job done of building the wall. And then all of a sudden, you hear of how God sent someone and had supplied him with uh, permission from the king and even materials to do the work. It's so important because he reminded them, God has not forgotten you. And, you know, this is my experience when we went to Fais, Russia, uh, in the most destitute areas of Russia. The Fais, Russia is where all the, the prisons are still today, and Historically, it's where the gulags were in Siberia and the far east of Russia. Terrible place. A lot of dysfunction, a lot of alcoholism, a lot of abuse. And just to go there, and we met peasant Jews, Jews who were so poor they could hardly, uh, have, uh, could hardly live in a, in, a, in a decent place at all. No food. And just to go there and bring a message of hope. It was just to remind them that God hadn't forgotten them. And it was just, uh, it's been a, such a blessing to do that. And so Nehemiah reminded them that they had come back to Zion for a purpose, to rebuild the temple and to restore the walls of Jerusalem. And they were really inspired, and they stood up, let us start rebuilding, and they began this good work. But then again, as soon as you get going, opposition appears once again. In chapter 2, verses 19 to 20, we again see Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite, and this time joined with Geshem the Arab, and they heard about this, and they started to jeer, and they started to mock and bring personal accusation against Nehemiah. They tried to take the leader out, and they brought ridicule against the people of God. <clears throat> so Nehemiah shoots up one of those wonderful prayers. I love his prayers, his kind of arrow prayers. I like arrow prayers like this. He says, the God of heaven will make us prosper. 
and we, his servants, will arise and build, but you will have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. He sends up an arrow prayer, and uh, he reminds God <clears throat> of, uh, of his calling on his life. And so the success of the gospel enterprise, the success of the new covenant people of God is not based upon our own abilities, not based upon our own righteousness, even as we, we heard this morning in, the, in this, uh, uh, the songs that we sang, but rather our success as the people of God and the new covenant people of God is based upon the Messiah's promise. This is what Jesus said to Peter in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. He says, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is the foundational promise of all the church is built upon. And so when we are looking to further the kingdom of God, we always do it on the basis of this promise. Nehemiah himself also reminded the people that God hadn't forgotten them, that, they had, uh, that God had a plan for them. He had a hope and a future for them. And Nehemiah instilled with them uh, the dream of rebuilding the city of God and reminded them that it is possible to get it done. Galatians 6 verse 9 tells us, and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then we go over to chapter 3. Chapter 3 is all about uh, the beginning of the rebuilding project. It was great that they were zealous about getting the job done, a job that hadn't been done for 100 years, but it was going to take more than just zeal to accomplish the work. And so we see that they needed organization. They needed humility. They needed participation and also cooperation. And so I'm not going to be reading entire chapter 3. Let's refer to a few verses in chapter 3. So we see here that Nehemiah had really a great challenge ahead of him. But he believed in the power of a great God. But he also took great dedication on behalf of the people to get the job done. And at the beginning of the following chapter, Nehemiah correctly acknowledges the dedication of the people. In Nehemiah 4 verse 6, he says, So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to do the work. That's where it was all had to be in their attitude to do the work. That's where it all began. How wonderful it is. And that was obviously a great encouragement for Nehemiah. It was the British humorist Jerome K. Uh, who said, I like work. It fascinates me. I can sit and look at it for hours. Well, <clears throat> when it comes to doing the work of the Lord, you always find that there are lots of people who will tell you how not to do the work or how you are failing to do the work, but they'll never help you. But blessed are those people who roll up their sleeves and get the job done. And remember that the purpose of the work of rebuilding the wall was not for the glory of the people, but for the glory of God. God's reputation was being damaged by the shame and disgrace that the people of Jerusalem were living in without protection. It was actually a blight on God's name, so they had to get this job done. They had to rebuild the city of the great king, as the Psalms tell us. 
and it was a source of mocking for their Gentile neighbors. The psalmist said in Psalm 48, verses 1 and 2, he said, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. But it wasn't looking like that when they were there at this point. Psalm 87 says also, The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of, of uh, Jacob. And so, if God loves Jerusalem so much, why were the walls in ruins and why were the gates, the gates burned? Why was the holy city a reproach? Something had to be done about it. But they had to first organize the work. Nehemiah scoped out the, war, the work. So when he rode on that horse all around the walls of Jerusalem, he was scoping the work. And then he began to plan meticulously. 38 Individual people are named in this chapter, and 42 different groups are identified. I'm sure that there were many other unnamed workers whose labors were also very important, and each worker, whether they were named or anonymous, was assigned a place and a task. Each of us have gifts that God has given us by the different life experiences that we had, or even by our genetics, perhaps, but also by the life experiences, the learnings that we've had as we've lived on this earth. And God can use all our gifts in, in different ways in this one body, the body of Messiah. It's not the role of leaders to do all the work, of course, but the job of the leaders to help members identify their gifts and to build up the, uh, the uh, body of Messiah to maturity so they can do the work of ministry. And when we all work towards the same goal, and we keep our eyes on Yeshua, on Jesus, the Messiah, the author and the perfecter of our faith, then we can finish the task. And in our, in our kind of endeavor, what is finishing the task? Is it building a church? Is it, you know, building buildings? No, the task that we have is to proclaim the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, to every tribe and every tongue before his return. Our specific task at Celebrate Messiah is to bring the good news to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But back in Nehemiah, the word built is used six times, and it really means rebuilt, because in those days, and still today, if you go visit Israel, you visit a, an, an ancient site, you'll see that they mostly built or rebuilt with the stones that were already there from previous cities or previous foundations. They used the stones that were already there, and of course, some new stones to build the structures. They didn't throw away the old, they used it. That's good for us older people. And, you know, it's great if you go to Israel, go to Jerusalem, you can see Nehemiah's wall. I think I have a photograph there, Nehemiah's wall. You know, two and a half thousand years later, it's still there. This word repair in Nehemiah is used 35 times. It means to make strong and firm. Nehemiah wasn't interested in a quick fix, a whitewashed wall that would soon crumble. They were building for the glory of God, and therefore they had to do their best work. They rebuilt the gates of Jerusalem, first using timber from the king's forest. The gates were important, of course, for both safety of the people and control are those who are able to go in and out of the city. It also talks a lot in Nehemiah chapter 3 about bolts and bars. 
They're mentioned actually five times. The sons of Hassaniah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. Joada, the son of Paseah and Meshulam, the son of Besodiah, how you like all those names in Nehemiah, repaired the gates of Yeshana. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. Bolts refer to the sockets in which the bars were fitted, thus making it difficult for anyone outside the gates to open it. It isn't enough that we simply do the work of God, but we also must make sure that we protect the work of God from the enemy. 2 John 8 says, Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. That's why I love that blessing that God bestows upon us. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Not only be blessed, but be kept in his love and care. All right, we also see humility had to be used in order to get the work done. The workers needed to humble themselves. They had to be willing to endure ridicule from their detractors, and they had to be willing to get their hands dirty. Notice that the first people to start the work were priests. In Nehemiah 3.1, it says, Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers and priests. They built the sheep gate. The high priest built the sheep gate with his workers. They consecrated it to, and set its doors. They consecrated as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. So it really shows us that leaders, of course, even the priests, had to uh, set an example to the rest of the people. The fact that this Kohen Hagadol, the great high priest, was willing to put his back to the work shows that he considered building the wall to be a ministry to the Lord. And since the sacrifices came into the city through the Sheep Gate, the priests would have had special interest in uh, restoring this particular part of the wall. Sadly, not everyone wanted to do the work. Nehemiah 3.5 says, And next to them the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. So the Amha'aretz, the, the people of the land, they were happy to get the work done from Tekoa, the people from Tekoa, but the nobles from the village must have thought that the work of Rebuilding the wall was below them. The Word of God tells us, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And remember that someone actually had to rebuild the dung gate. Who would like that job? Our friend Malchia humbled himself to get that job done. In chapter 3, verse 14, Malchia, the son of Rahab, ruler of the district of Beit HaKerem, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. So we have to humble ourselves to get the work done. Thirdly, there had to be participation. The wall was rebuilt because there was a buy-in by all the people. They participated in the project. While it may be true that some people did more work than others, everyone contributed. And so there's various references here how Malchia, for instance, in verse 11, the son of Harim, the son, and Hasub, the son of Patat Moab, repaired another section and the towers of the ovens. Next to him, Ezra, the son of Yeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section opposite the adjacent, sorry, opposite the ascent to the armory and buttress. And so there was a clever principle that was used here. 
people were given jobs to repair the wall in front of their own houses. So there was investment into rebuilding the wall because you would be protected. Your family would be protected. There's various references to that in Nehemiah 3.10, Nehemiah 3.23, and also chapter 3, verses 28 to 30, where we see how people rebuilt the walls in front of their own houses. At least six different workers, plus an unknown number of priests, repaired the portions of the wall that were nearest to their own homes. And that's a good way, of course, to get people invested in the project. They, con- they were contributing to their own personal protection. And we, when we build a community of God, when we build a church or build a bo- the body of Messiah, it it's, is for our own blessing too, isn't it? It's for the blessing of us, it's blessing of our children and our children's children because we are providing a place where God's word can be pro- uh, preached and taught and lived out in community. And so it's an important principle. On the other hand, another principle that we glean from this is that uh, in our service of God is that our faith or our religion, if you like, begins at home. A Chinese proverb says, better to be kind at home than to burn incense in a far place. And Rabbi Shaul, that's the Apostle Paul, said, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. And I love also what uh, it says here about a person whose name was Baruch. Baruch, in chapter 3, verse 20, says, After him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the, door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. Baruch is the only worker of whom it is says that he did the work earnestly or zealously. And the Hebrew word for zealous means to burn or to glow. So he was hot for the work. You know, you've seen people like that, the people who are really on fire and they really are an encouragement to others. The wise writer of Ecclesiastes says, whatever you find your hand to do, do it with all your might. What a good word for us. And then finally, we noticed that all the work had to be done in unity, in cooperation with one another. They worked next to each other in cooperation and in unison with each, and, uh, each person doing their part of the work. They were working together to accomplish something that they knew they could not accomplish on their own. It's that, and that's the essence of teamwork. They also knew that they were accomplishing something that was not just for themselves but for the glory of God and for posterity after them. They kept their eyes on the vision and they were not distracted by the challenges and disappointments. There didn't seem to be any jealousies or arguments about which part of the wall or which part of the gate that they were going to work on. They just knew they had to get the job done and they accomplished it. And so... Let me finish off with a wonderful encouragement from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 2 to 6. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And so they work together to get the job done in unity. It's interesting in chapter 3, the work started at the sheep gate and then actually finished at the sheep gate. 
And that's very interesting. This was the gate through which the animals would be brought into the city. And this is also the gate in which the sacrifices would be brought into the city. The gate was near the temple area, so it was logical that the priests would make this their special project. This is the only gate of which is recorded that it was sanctified and dedicated to God. I believe that this gate reminds us of Jesus, our Messiah, the Lamb of God who died for the sins of the world. Of course, those sacrifices were a foreshadowing of the final sacrifice that would come through Jesus, the Messiah. Nehemiah could have begun his record with any of the gates, but he chose to start at the end, at the end, start and end with the report about the sheep gate, the sheep gate. And Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Apart from him and his sacrifice, we would have nothing eternal and nothing satisfying. And so Bible scholar Warren Wiesby says, nothing is said about the sheep's gates, locks, and bars. For the way is never closed to the lost, and anyone can come to the Savior. So what a blessed truth that we have is that we can enter into God's presence through Jesus the Messiah. He is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for Nehemiah. What an amazing man that he was. So human in many ways, just like us, Lord. We all relate to him in various ways. Thank you, Lord, for the way you inspired him. Thank you that you put a message of hope in his heart and that, Lord, you helped him to keep on track. Thank you, Lord, that he endured opposition and was able to lead the people to complete this job. And they finished this work in 52 days. Work that could not have been done in 100 years was actually finished in 52 days. How amazing is that? Thank you, Lord, that at the right time and the right place, Lord, you call us to serve you and to get the job done. And so, Lord, here we are. We want to serve you in this world. Empower us with your Ruach HaKodesh, your Holy Spirit. Help us to be your witnesses in our local area, in Australia and around the world. And help us to be also a witness to my people, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. For we long to see them come back into the kingdom of God and be grafted back into the olive tree. For this I pray, Shem Yeshua HaMashiach, in the name of Jesus the Messiah. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.